Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Dear passengers, we now invite all the passengers to make their way to the train. We wish you a pleasant journey. Hi, Benjamin Thompson from The Nature Podcast here. Now, we've not got a regular show for you this week because I've been on a specially organized train taking hundreds of people to the UN's climate conference COP26. Our journey begins in Amsterdam. And as we cross Europe and head up to Glasgow, where the conference is taking place, I'll be talking science with several of my fellow passengers and finding out why they're on board. Ladies and gentlemen, good morning and a very welcome aboard of this Eurostar service to London's in Pankers International. One of the organizers of Rail to the Cop is Myra Departa, chair of the non-profit organization Youth for Sustainable Travel. As we made our way across the Netherlands, I caught up with her. So it's a campaign set up by youth. It actually came from the project Sail to the Cop that we did two years ago when we sailed to the climate conference in Chile. Or actually, we tried to sail there. It was moved to Madrid and we couldn't go. And then we came up with the idea to take the train instead, both to Madrid and now to uh, Glasgow as well. So that's what we're doing. And we realized quite soon that we would have a very unique opportunity of having very different groups of people on the train. So there's youth activists, but there's also climate scientists, NGO representatives, delegates. And we saw that as a unique opportunity to really get these people talking to each other about mainly fair and sustainable travel related topics throughout the whole train. So is that, would you say, the main motivation for this, is collaboration? Yeah, but another important motivation for us is also to get people listen to the youth, especially at a process like the COP. Yes, because there's been a lot of events recently where youth activists have said, we are being sidelined, we are not being listened to, but we are the generation that will be directly affected. Do you think that will be the case with COP26, or are you hoping for a different outcome this time? I am definitely hoping for a different outcome, but I also know from experience that it's quite hard. But what I do see is that the youth movement is kind of professionalizing, and a lot of the youth that I talk to are experts on certain topics or just COP in general. And I think we've really been educating ourselves, which will also give us a little bit more leverage at the COP. And the vast majority of people on the train were young people enthusiastically getting involved in the workshops being run as the train sped along. 
As we left Rotterdam, I met Lena Scovland Larsen, a young researcher formerly from Lund University who now works independently as part of a group called the Zetkin Collective. She's focused on better understanding the social and political effects of climate change. I have a master's in political ecology where we look at the societal effects of environmental and climate crisis in Peru. It's a lot about looking at, for example, the economic system. How does that provoke certain factors that could, for example, be extraction of minerals for batteries or extraction of fossil fuels? And how do these factors affect nature, the local area, the local people? And how can we look at it more like systemically? What can be changed in a bigger scale? Part of your work is looking at the effects of climate change on populations around the world, notably in Peru, yeah, you've been yeah, working. What I focused on in this research on Peru, actually all of it is related to water. Where I did my studies in Juarez in Peru, they have two big problems. One of them is water scarcity because glaciers are retreating, but it's also because of the precipitation changes. And the other is the risk of a glacial lake outburst flood. So in Juarez, there is um, a glacial lake which has become 17 times bigger than it was. And the risk is it's burst and create a huge uh, flood. And it actually happened once before in 1941. They just found out last year that it was actually related to climate change. All the water spilled out, uh, uh, ran through the city, uh, destroyed everything on its path and killed thousands of people in the order of a few minutes. In addition to her research in Peru, Lena is part of the Zetkin Collective, a group of researchers and activists which is trying to get to the bottom of the political ecology of the far right. In particular, how this relates to climate denial. So there are different forms of climate denial. Direct denial, where you just say, well, it doesn't happen. And like indirect denial, where you accept that it happens, but uh, you either say that it's not so important or you accept that it's important, but you still vote for denialist parties or you still go around do your em- emission lifestyle. Or, But the outright denial is what we have been looking most at in the Setkin Collective. And that, surprisingly, has actually risen at the same time as the temperature has risen. When you think a little bit about it, it kind of makes sense because the climate crisis, it's a crisis that for the individual can sometimes seem quite difficult to do anything about, which means you can often feel quite hopeless. You can feel that you cannot do anything about it. Or what also happens is that for some people, when they meet this crisis that demands that they have to change their lives a lot, could, for example, be coal mine workers. We have to basically erase their jobs for the planet to survive. And, of course, they will have some resistance against that. For those people, it might be easier to to outright deny climate change. And something that we focused on is that when society meets crisis, you will often see a need in the public to find strong leaders. And that's why we have this, like, as we call it in the Setting Collective, the danger of fossil fascism. Because there is a danger that if this trend is going to keep rising, then we'll see more fasciation. It's a very glib question. What, what's to be done, do you think? Something that's, that's really, really important is to offer people 
better alternative to build and and keep on building democracy and near democracy where people have an influence on their everyday lives and everything. If I should be a bit more concrete on like what can be done, I think there's a lot of very concrete and very straightforward things to do. For example, right now we are in a rail towards the cup. And the rails of the cup, and this whole industry, the the train industry, we could boost that a lot. We could limit the aviation industry a lot. Another obvious thing to do is to like just stop investing in fossil fuels. You hear like how there's there's still more investments in fossil fuels than in renewables. I mean that's crazy. Lena was by no means the only young researcher on the train who'd chosen to focus on climate change. But not everyone had such a clear path. Here's Vera Hoveling from the Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands. So my background is actually very broad. I first studied art. I have a bachelor in fine arts, and then I moved on to computer science. Uh, I'm doing my masters now. It's officially in artificial intelligence techniques about the automated transcription of music. And I also work at the, the same university where we make animations, applets, visualization stuff for mathematical concepts for students to understand better. So I think it's fair to say then uh, you're, you're not a climate scientist. No, <laughs> I'm definitely not a climate scientist. When I found out about the climate crisis, I used one of my free electives to do a course on climate science and ethics. And then I was like, whoa, this is horrendous. And also if this is which it is, the story of the time that we live in, then I better spend time on this. And so learning about something is one thing, but you've obviously taken a step further. You've got on a train with, I don't know how many other hundreds of young people to go to COP26. Have you made connections? Have you met people who uh, you can work with in future, that sort of thing? Yeah, definitely. I did a workshop in the first train together with someone who told me a lot of things I never heard of, like global governance terms I didn't heard before, and also possibilities there to use artificial intelligence, uh, which is something I study, but I, I struggle with finding ethically appropriate applications. I mean, I work on music now because I think that can't really do any harm. But yeah, there's very interesting ideas about that. I'm definitely going to be in touch with him just because it was so interesting. Obviously, you've done a lot of reading, a lot of research. You've done a lot of studying now as well. Do you think this might be a future avenue for you? I mean, you said you, you know, you've maybe met someone who you can do a bit of collaboration with. Do you think this represents maybe a bit of a turning point for your academic career? In the end, I look a lot for purpose in my work. And that will have in some way or another to include addressing the climate crisis. If I graduate in a year... I have no idea yet what I'll do. But I know I want it to be related to at least make it about how are we going to be good human beings in the time that's coming. At first I thought, well, then I have to apply my academic skills to marginally improve rendering times for solar panel simulations. But it just made me very unhappy. I haven't figured out what it'll mean exactly. But it'll address this in one way or another, for sure. I mean, this is your first COP. If you had a message that you could give to the people at the centre of the COP, from the people on this train, what would it be, do you think? I think many on the train will agree 
that I think policies should be made with people that are born in a hundred years in mind and the conditions that should be there for them. I left Vera pondering her academic future, but she wasn't going to wait to work out how her research could help in the fight against climate change. She wanted to take action now, and so, like so many on the train, she was heading to COP as an activist. On the second leg of the journey, from London to Glasgow, I met Ada Lai, a young activist leader from Belgium, who, among other things, helped organise the school strikes there. Although she's not a scientist, she told me how she has actively placed science at the centre of her cause. So my name is Adelaide Charlier. I am part of the movement uh, Youth for Climate in Belgium. And so I am a member of that movement and going to the COP as a climate activist and part of the Youth for Climate. So climate activism has been a, a big part of your life for many years in Belgium, right? Yeah, it's been uh, two years and a half, three years that I've been involved in the climate movement in Belgium. Uh, it's been pretty intense since then, yes. Organizing many actions to put pressure on politicians and to make sure citizens are aware of the urgency behind uh, climate change. We reach those goals thanks to actions like strikes or other ways for us to keep like reaching these goals. Right, and you enlisted the help of a bunch of climate scientists as well to make your case to Belgian politicians, right? Exactly. So, of course, actually, as soon as we started striking, the first question that politicians asked us or media asked us was, OK, climate, but what do you want us to do? And we thought, wow, this is the world upside down. Adults are asking us kids what we should be doing facing the urgency of climate change. So we thought, okay, we cannot give concrete response to that. We are clearly not experts. So we thought we are going to have a, a request towards experts to help us write down concretely on paper what can we do here in Belgium to reach a better ambition facing the urgency. That's what we did and we reached out to more than 120 experts and scientists and together they worked on a report and that report has 27 concrete recommendations that can today be directly implemented into the Belgian law. That's crucial, it's super important for us because this is the lines that can be followed by our politicians to really be able to be aligned to the Paris Agreement, for example. So today when people ask us now the question, okay, what should we do about climate? We can tell you we got the answer here in this report you got everything, and it's not just kids that are shouting in the streets that tell you this. It's experts. It's science. There was so much hope and appetite for change from so many of the young people I spoke to, and yet no one was under any illusions that the COP process moves slowly. And so, as we hurtled towards COP26, I wanted to delve deeper into why. And who better to ask than an ex-co-chair of the IPCC and one of the experts that Adelaide commissioned for her report. My name is Jean-Pascal Vanipassel. I'm a climate scientist and professor of climatology and environmental sciences at the Université Catholique de Louvain. And I was vice chair of the IPCC from 2008 until 2015. So why are you on the rail to COP today then? Well, this is probably my 25th COP out of 26. I was at COP1 in 1995 and I've been as a scientific advisor in the Belgian delegation since that first COP. For every COP taking place in Europe, I've always tried to attend it by train uh, instead of uh, flying 
every time it was possible uh, because uh, as I gave many interviews uh, talking about the importance to reduce carbon dioxide emissions if my own behavior is not coherent with that rightfully so it would be criticized and obviously there's a lot of young people on the train today making their voice heard are you impressed with this endeavor Yes, that's a very positive evolution because I was on the train to Copenhagen in 2009. There were many more um, older people then uh, and it's very good that there is a very strong young delegation because they are so full of energy, they are so frustrated by the lack of action, so are so many scientists actually, uh, that they come with a lot of energy to push decision makers and governments to act much more. And I think frustration is, a, is, is the right word to use from the sense that I've got on the train so far today. How do you think COP26 will go? I mean, we, there's been enough warnings over the past 30 years. Yeah, well, you know, it's one COP in a series. It's certainly not the last one. It's not the COP of the last change. I think it's very dangerous to say that, actually, as some do. It, it's a COP where some progress will be done, inevitably, and again, it won't be enough. It, it, it will be 10 times, uh, 100 times, maybe, too slow, too little, but still, it will be progress, and it's very important that countries and non-government participants uh, learn from what the others have succeeded to do or failed to do, agree on measures to take together because many measures are much more accepted when they apply to everyone. And what's your role in the next couple of weeks? What are you there for? Well, I'm a scientific advisor in the Belgian delegation and I will um, try to contribute uh, my knowledge and my experience to help the negotiations uh, go in the, the right direction. And do you think they will go in the right direction? Yeah, I think the direction will be good. There is a sense of urgency, uh, an understanding that climate change is now really there. It's not just a projection in the future. Now, some uh, will not move as fast or as much as what is really needed, but many will move in the right direction. So overall, I think some progress will be made. I mean, the reports this week are coming out saying potentially we're looking at 2.7 degrees of warming as things stand. I mean, that's catastrophic, right? And I think that's an underestimate because very frankly, how can you determine the temperature that you would have in 2100 from commitments that extend essentially until 2030 or 2035? Because the temperature will very much be the results also of the emissions taking place after 2030 or even after 2050. And I wouldn't be surprised if um, actually it was an even higher number than 2.7. I mean, obviously, we, we wait and see when the dust settles what gets agreed in the next two weeks. But what one thing would you really like to see at the end of COP has, has been agreed among the nations there? A very important decision that might be taken, at least on the political level, even if it's not you know, formally decided in a legalistic way, is to, to revise the country commitments at a higher frequency than every five or ten years. Because it doesn't give the opportunity to those countries to really benefit from the experience they have, from the uh, evolution of technologies, from the experiences of other countries, etc. A faster rate of revision possibly every year. Why not? Why not try to revise the, the plans uh, at every COP? Or at least give the opportunity to those who can. That would be significant progress, I think.
we are just a few minutes away from our terminate station last uh, leg of this part of the journey it's been a pleasure traveling with you on this lovely climate train i'd like to welcome you into scotland as well as into glasgow Something like 11 hours after we set off from Amsterdam, we finally made it to Scotland. And once again, we all piled off the train, accompanied by a bagpiper who was there at the station to meet us. Throughout this journey, I was struck by the energy, enthusiasm and knowledge of the young people I've met. And yet, their enthusiasm was tempered with a heavy dose of cynicism. It's yet to be seen what progress will be made at this year's COP, but regardless, young people are increasingly making their voices heard, and science is at the heart of that message. We'll find out how successful they are over the next couple of weeks. Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.